You're listening to episode 29 of the We Got the Runs podcast. In this episode, we'll talk to Alex Hutchinson about his book, Endure. Welcome to the We Got the Runs podcast. We're your hosts, Letty and Angela, and we invite you to join us as we talk about all things running. In this podcast, we talk tips, tactics, and strategies to make running a favorite part of your life. Hey runners, welcome to episode 29. My name is Letty Lundquist, and I'm very excited to have you guys back for another episode. I'm sitting here in my office, and I have my hoodie on and a hot cup of tea in my hands to warm my fingers. It's 54 degrees, you guys, in Florida, which is at 12 degrees Celsius for those of you that live abroad, which is 30%, according to our podcast analytics, 30% of our listeners are from somewhere else, another country but the United States. So if you want to, you can contact me and send me a message and let me know where you're from. I'm super curious about that. Anyway, back to this cold weather. I woke up this morning and I put on my running gear and I realized how cold it was outside and I took it back off. And that was it for my run today. <laughs> I have a very weak mind right now, which catapults me right into today's topic. See how smoothly that went? Today's topic is mind power and we're going to have Alex Hutchinson on for our interview. Today's topic is mind power, and mind power is one of the strongest and most useful powers that we possess. This power, together with our imagination, can create whatever we want it to create. Success, failure, happiness, unhappiness, opportunities, obstacles. So the thoughts that pass through our minds are responsible for almost everything that happens in our life. So tapping into the power of our minds begins with being aware of what our thoughts are and paying attention to every thought that enters and leaves our minds. Obviously, as I demonstrated this morning with my inability to go outside for a run in a 54-degree weather circumstance, I am no expert on this topic, but as you guys all know, I love having expert people on my podcast. So for today, I asked the author of my favorite book, Alex Hutchinson, to come onto my podcast to talk about his book, Endure. So I want to go ahead and introduce Alex Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson is a National Magazine Award-winning journalist who writes about science of endurance for Runner's World and Outside Magazine. And he frequently also contributes to other publications such as New York Times and The New Yorker. He's a former long-distance runner from the Canadian national team, and he holds a master's degree in journalism from Columbia and a PhD in physics from Cambridge. Alex Hutchinson's book Endure was published in 2018, and basically that book suggests that the physical barriers that you encounter are set as much by your brain as your body. This means that the mind is the new frontier of endurance, and that the horizons of performance are much more elastic than we once thought. So without any further ado, I'm going to now play my interview with Alex Hutchinson. All right, so I'm super excited to be here with Alex Hutchinson. Alex, you're a runner and a journalist and the author of my favorite book, Endure. Welcome and thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks so much, Lady. It's great to be here. Alex, so um, I told you this is my favorite book and um, I don't just own one copy. I own three. I also have, <laughs> I have the summary of the book, which I take to races with me. And I read that to call my mind the night before a race. And I'm not anything like a pro athlete, but I just 
do that because it works for me. And then also your book is my go-to gift for any of my friends that start running or start taking their running serious. So I just wanted to let you know that I'm excited to have you here. And I wanted to have our listeners hear from you who you are, where you live, what you do, and when you started running. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for those kind words and for buying copies of the book. That's, <laughs> that, that's, uh, I wish there were more people in the world who are doing that, but no, that's, it's really, really nice to hear. And I, I, I appreciate the kind words. Um, who I am and where I'm, where I'm at. Well, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Toronto, which, uh, which is where I live. It's actually where I grew up. I then, um, I lived in a bunch of places around the world, uh, as a young adult, I, I, I spent, uh, well, I moved to Montreal within Canada, and then I was in Britain. I lived in Britain for three years, and then I was in the States. I was in suburban uh, Maryland outside Washington, D.C. for almost three years, then New York for a year, then back to then to Ottawa, then to Toronto. Then I moved in to Australia for four years with my wife, who was going to, to medical school there, then back to Toronto. So that's, that's a bit of a circuitous answer. But yeah, t- Toronto is where I'm from, but I've, I've lived in, in the United States and in Britain and Australia. So if had a chance to see lots of places and to run in lots of places and to uh, meet runners from from various places around the world. Um, my, in terms of what I do, I guess the the backstory is that it, it took me a while to find the career that I that I now have, which I which I really enjoy. Um, I started out in physics. Actually, I, I studied physics in university and I worked as a physicist until my late twenties. And then, uh, for a, ver- a variety of reasons for, you know, we could spend an hour talking about what on earth happened to my career, but I, I decided being journalist would being a journalist might be fun, even though I didn't know much about it. So I, I went back to school and did a master's in my, uh, fin- I finished, I guess when I was about 30 and, uh, and became a journalist. But throughout all that time I've, I was running, I, I started running in high school and I've been running pretty much ever since, uh, you know, with various degrees of obsession and, and, uh, and, and passion. But uh, so when I became a freelance journalist, um, I, I sort of naturally gravitated to writing about things I was interested in, like running, and using the expertise I had, which was uh, as a scientist. So I ended up writing about the, the science of running. So not so much about who won the race, but, but why one person wins the race or why one day we have a good race and the next day we don't. And, and so for the last, I guess it's been, I don't know, 12 or 13 years that I've been writing in that topic. And about 10 years ago, I thought it would be that there was a good book in this topic, that there's enough an- unanswered questions about the nature of limits. And so I, I started working on that about 10 years ago and it finally came out a couple of years ago. But yeah, I, and, and I guess to, to complete the picture, I, my main gig right now is I write for Outside Magazine. I read a column called Sweat Science where... My my goal is it's pretty wide ranging, but the the main theme is the science of endurance. So if there's new studies exploring how we push ourselves or what factors matter or what we can do to get faster, uh, then I'll I'll sort of look at the science, look at the evidence, and try and understand what it's telling us. That's super cool that you get to live in all these different places and meet different athletes and take different perspectives of of what's going on, and and also that you ultimately are able to combine your passion for running with not just physically doing it, but also writing about it and bring it to other people. And um, that brings me to, you know, what you said, science of running, or I guess the running psychology and your book, which is on running psychology and the concept of training your mind, um, which totally fascinates me. And um, do you think that 
given that we spend so much money on running shoes and we all have coaches now and we train really hard, but that there's not so much out there about um, training your mind. Do you think that in the coming years, this will be a bigger concept for all of us? I, I do. And I think well, one thing I would say is, is there's always been sports psychology out there. Uh, even, you know, it, I guess the, the, the first sports psychology studies were in the actually the late 1800s or early 1900s, but the field didn't really catch on until about the 1970s. Since the 1970s, it's definitely been a thing. But I think for a large majority of, of people and, and even, of, even athletes at a very high level, it was always sort of, uh, sort of pushed away into a corner. That and I, I was definitely like this when I, you know, my my most competitive days were in in the '90s when I went to to college and then competed seriously after that. And we actually had a sports psychologist that that worked with my university track team in the '90s. Nobody took it seriously, including me. We we thought it was just a kind of a waste of an hour here and there that they would talk to us about, you know, uh, mindset and and negative thought stopping and things like that, because it's very hard to do good empirical science about sports psychology it's hard to do you know placebo controlled studies of visualization uh, or things like that and so it's easy to dismiss because it's hard to measure and so I, what i think is changing and has been changing maybe for for a few years now is that there's starting to be more reliable evidence more things you can point to and say if yeah, this really does matter just because it's hard to measure what's going on in your mind compared to we can easily measure your VO2 max or your lactate threshold, but we can't measure are you, uh, do you lack confidence or do you self-sabotage? Um, but there, people are starting to find ways of testing the role of the brain and the role of mindset and psychology. And so that, I think, is what's starting to win over people like me who are very naturally skeptical, who want to see the evidence uh, to be able to say, oh, actually, you know what? I, I know experientially, we all know that uh, we, we, the thoughts in our heads matter, but now there's evidence to say, hey, yeah, you, you, should, take, you should care about your training program. You should care about your, your, you know, your nutrition. You should care about your equipment. You should also care about what's going on in your head and take time to optimize it. Yeah, that makes so much sense because every person is different and everybody has a different background, especially average runners, I want to say, because there's so many of us, we all have different baggages that we carry around throughout the day. We have different problems that we're facing. And then we go all go to the same race and have the same training plan that we downloaded online. So then, of course, it's going to affect us differently. So I'm really glad to hear that. And um, But for you personally, um, there's the story that I would love if you could tell our listeners about your 1500 meter race where you were improperly timed, which I think is probably a big motivator for your book. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. This, uh, it, and it's, it's funny uh, that this was a big moment in my life, but it's, it really came back to me when I started to try uh, when I was writing the introduction to my book and thinking, okay, I've spent all this time collecting all this research. How do I know it's going to be interesting to other people? And then that made me ask, how, well, why is it interesting to me? What has caused me to get so fascinated by this? And, and that's what made me look back and think, I think that race experience was really what started my interest. And so basically, to, to sort of try and give you the semi-short version of the story, um, I, I was trying to break four minutes for 1,500 meters. 1,500 meters is a little bit shorter than a mile. So it's kind of like a poor man's four-minute mile barrier. And I had been stuck ever since high school right around four minutes. I'd been running 401 or 402 for four straight seasons. And so at that point, I had the sense that 
this was kind of what my body was capable of. I was that I should, I knew I should be able to run 359, but I figured if I was stuck at this barrier for so long, it meant that that was kind of my physical limits. And the day the, 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 when I actually broke it, what happened was it was a totally meaningless race, a small indoor race, one that I didn't think would be, I had no, I, I, I didn't think this would be the day when I broke it. But, uh, I, you know, I, I decided to try my best. The gun went off. I, I, I took off as, as hard as I could, or at least as hard as I thought I should. And it was an indoor track, so 200-meter track, which means you get splits every, every 200 meters from the, the timekeeper. And so when I came through the first lap, the timekeeper called out a, a time that was just way faster than I thought I was going. <coughs> Excuse me. So I had this disconnect between feeling pretty relaxed, like I was running at the right pace, but then hearing a time that was, that suggested that I was going to run really fast. And this happened, you know, second lap, same thing, third lap, same thing. And I I just, I I had this sensation that, oh my God, I am having the day of all days because I just feel so relaxed and yet the time is so fast. And so at that point I stopped listening to the splits and just was kind of figuring, you know, don't waste this moment. Just, just go, just run. And so I did that, and I ended up running that day 3.52, which was a nine-second personal best after four years of being stuck at basically the same place. And what I found out after the race from a teammate who'd also timed my race was that the, the timekeeper was giving the wrong splits. He had missed the start by about probably about three seconds. So when he was calling out 27 seconds after the first lap, I was actually going maybe 30 or 31 seconds. And so... In, a, in essence, he tricked me into thinking that I was having the greatest day possible, and, and so I did. And, and this was, I mean, it was a stroke of good luck for me, but it also made it really hard then to, to finish a race. And, uh, you know, normally what I would, you know, after a race, I would think, well, I ran as fast as I could. I guess that's what my body was capable of today. But after that, I, I had to sort of reassess that and think, well... I don't know. I, I had all this. I had been running this, the, all these races and thinking that was my limit. And then all of a sudden, something random changed the the feedback I was getting, and I discovered I was capable of more. Now, I wish that the ending of the story is, and therefore, I discovered how to push myself to my absolute limits every day, and every race from then on was really, really good. That's that's not how the story ends. It's still complicated, but it just it planted that question in me: what determines when you're going to have a good day? And it also made me always wonder: is there a little bit more? Whenever I felt like I was pushing my limits. I would never. I would. I would be less likely to just accept it and say, "Okay, now I have to slow down." Instead, I would. I would sort of wonder. Maybe there's more in the tank. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, such an awesome story, and I hope you were able to um, go back and uh, tell your timekeeper. Thank you for timing me improperly because this is a, a big catapult for for a huge book that came out. Um, and it's I, I've crazy. always wondered where that guy is, and uh, I, you know, I, I have no idea who he was. It was actually in in Quebec, which is the French part of Canada. So he's he was a French guy, and so initially, I just thought maybe he was having trouble translating from French to English or something. But uh, yeah, so, someday I'd like to find that guy and thank him. But I have no idea who it was. I mean, it makes you think if he's into running, he probably read your book too, though. So maybe <laughs> he might like, recognize himself. Me. Maybe yeah. he'll come forward. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
<laughs> but um, about the structure of your book, um, the lawyer in me absolutely loves it. It's so well written. It's so well organized. Um, chapter by chapter, it's a every chapter has a topic, and it's almost like a themed collection of short stories where somebody's having an experience, and then um, there's an improvement, and then there's a takeaway from it. So I wanted to ask you, how did you write this book? Did you have the topics first, and then you found collaborating stories, or did you um, have athletes, and how did you go about doing that? Yeah, th I mean, thanks for the nice words, and, and for for thanks for thinking about the structure because th that was actually one of the big barriers for this book. So I had, like I said, I started working on this book in about 2009 or 2010. I gathered a big bunch of research and I knew I wanted to write a book, but to write a book, you need to, or at least to get a, you know, with a major publisher, you need to submit a book proposal. And one of the key things you have to give in the book proposal is the chapter outline. What is each chapter and what's it about? And I really, really struggled to figure out how to try and tell this story because there's a lot of uh, you know, it's the, the, the arc isn't necessarily clear because it's not like, unfortunately, and I'll, I'll give away the ending here, the, the ending of the book isn't now we know all the answers about the limits of endurance. The ending of the book is there's still lots of questions, but we maybe think about it differently than, than we used to, that that's no longer just about your muscles and stuff. And I wasn't quite sure how to put that together. And so I put a lot of, of, of thought into it. Now, in terms of, and, and it, you know, it delayed me. It was sort of a year or two of like spitting my wheels until I sort of came up with the, the, the structure, which is, you know, it's in, in sort of three parts. One, looking at the, the, the different theories about for how to understand the endurance. Two, looking at the different specific factors that can interfere with endurance, like pain or, or uh, uh, cold or, or heat or uh um fuel and things like that and hydration and then the third part is how do we change our limits which is which is a more speculative part of the book um but in terms of then in terms of the balance between the science and the the narratives ag again this was a big challenge because what i had starting out was a huge pile of studies a huge pile of interesting results from the literature and and what i knew would be a real problem was if i said here's a really cool scientific study. And you, you do that once and people are like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then you, and then you immediately go, and here's another really cool sci scientific study and another and another and another. And after a hundred really cool scientific studies, no, it doesn't matter how cool the study is. And you know, people are bored if you're just doing study after study. So I started with the studies and then it was a process for me of looking around and trying to find real world examples that illustrate some of, illustrate some of the the surprising things or the the concepts that are discussed in this study. So if I'm writing a topic about hydration and whether, you know, do, when you feel thirsty, does it mean you're really out of water or is it just a warning sign? You know, do you have to drink ahead of thirst? Okay. So let's go look for anecdotes and stories about uh, people who've pushed their hydration to the limits. And so I ended up finding a, a story of a guy who was out in the desert for seven days with no water, and uh, um, which I thought illustrated the idea of like uh, dehydrate the difference between dehydration and heat stroke, because he was very hot and he was very dehydrated, but he didn't get heat stroke because dehydration and heat stroke actually aren't as linked as we thought they were. So anyway, it was, it was, that was the order of events. It was first the science and then find the stories to kind of flesh out this skeleton of, a, of an idea. Yeah, and made it super easy to to read um, for us. And then, you know, 
it's almost it's almost like uh, how do I explain it? It's almost like a science uh, example where you want to learn a concept and you demonstrate it best by showing a story, and then we get it rather than reading the dry science and it doesn't stick as well. So you did a super great job um, with that book, and yeah. I wanted to see if we could dig into it a little bit more. Um, because I'm just so fascinated by this concept for our listeners. Maybe you can explain a few of those, such as um, the central governor and the role of the brain, perhaps mental fatigue and perception of effort and familiarity of this with discomfort. Sure. Yeah. So the, the, the sort of the starting point is that if you had asked me 20 years ago, hey, Alex, why didn't you run faster in that race? My answer would have really been focused on the the machinery of the body the physiology of the body and and you can sort of think of it as like uh it's like a you know why doesn't a car go faster or why does a car stop well you know maybe the radiator boiled over because it overheated or maybe it ran out of gas its gas tank is empty and it's very simple like the car goes and then if something's wrong so if it's if it slows down there's there's something wrong with a, a component of it and in in the human Example, you can think of like, well, maybe your heart wasn't de de pumping hard enough to deliver oxygen to the muscles, or maybe you didn't eat enough and so you didn't have enough fuel for your muscles, or maybe you couldn't breathe hard enough to get enough oxygen or whatever. And and that's if if you follow that sort of approach, then the limits of endurance or, or how fast you can run, run a race is a very mathematical thing, right? You can measure how strong your heart is, how fast it can beat, how, um, how strong your muscles are. And you can plug that into an equation and say, oh, you should be able to run a marathon in 328 and a half. Um, and, but we know that that's not how the, the, the real world, world works. And if you run, let's say, okay, you can't run two marathons back to back, but let's say you run a 5K one week and a 5K the next week and a 5K the week after that. You're not going to run the same times over and over again, even if con conditions are the same. Some days are better than others. And, and it's not that your body has changed, it's that your mind has changed. And so the central governor theory, is, which is really this kind of starting point of my interest in this area, was an, it was proposed by a guy named Tim Noakes, a South African scientist in the 1990s. And you know, this whole, this whole area is very contentious and there's the different flavors of the theory and so on. But the essence of it is, is that Tim Noakes argued that when you reach your limits, when you go as fast as you can possibly go, it's not because your legs are incapable of moving any farther. And, you know, one example he would give is look at people, even at the Olympics, they're like sprinting for the gold medal and the Olympic marathon. If anyone is pushing themselves to their limits, it's these guys. Then they cross the line and they jog a victory lap with their, you know, with their flag. Their, their legs still work. They're not dead. They, they didn't push till their bodies couldn't go anymore. And he, what he argued instead is actually there's something in their brains that's holding them back for their own good, for their own protection, to make sure they don't push so hard that they can't get enough oxygen to their muscle or to their brains or to their hearts and they keel over and die or do themselves permanent damage. And, they, and you can think of this in evolutionary terms that, you know, if you're willing to If you were, if your ancestors were willing to chase the antelope, uh, you know, across the savanna until they literally dropped to the ground, then they didn't make it back to the campfire that night. You have to learn to balance your, your, you know, your your energy reserves to make sure you you can stay safe and protect yourself. And so, you know, what what this essentially says, the central governor says, when you reach your limits, it's your brain, not your muscles, that are that are slowing you down. And that opens then another whole can of questions of, well, how does this happen? And why does this happen? And can we change it? And there've, there've been lots of, there's been lots of debate about that. One sort of 
variation on the theory or advancement of the theory was proposed by a guy named Samuel Marcora, uh, an Italian researcher who was work, working in Britain. And he was about a decade ago, he started uh, writing about something he calls the psychobiological model. And at the essence of this is that, okay, the brain is in charge and the way it does this, it, or the, the, the master switch in this picture is your subjective perception of effort. How hard does it feel? So what he's saying is that if you're in the middle of a race and your competitor is starting to pull away from you, if the gap opens up, if you, if you say, oh, I just can't keep up with that competitor, it's not because you're incapable of keeping up with that competitor. If a lion jumped out from behind a tree and started chasing you, you would start sprinting because you're only halfway through the race. You obviously have plenty of energy left. So the reason that you feel you can't catch up to that effort is that you're making a judgment that the effort I would have to spend, it feels too hard given that I still have to go, you know, half the, half the race. And so for him, it's like, even if you're on a treadmill and they say, go on the treadmill until you fall off the back, the, the moment when you fall off the back, he would say, is not when your legs are incapable of doing it. It's when it gets so hard that you're no longer willing to keep pushing it, keep, keep pushing at that pace. Now, this is kind of hard to accept in some ways. You're like, you're telling me that when I collapse to the ground, it's because I chose to collapse to the ground. And it, it's tricky, but, but your perception of effort, what, the way to think of it is it's, it's not just a thought in your head. It's like the, the central dial on your dashboard that's monitoring everything that's going on in your body. It's monitoring what your lactate levels are. It's monitoring how hard you're breathing. It's monitoring how hot you are. So, so those, all those things, all those physical things are contributing to your perception of effort. But what's different is that what's going on in your head can also affect that dial. So if you're mentally fatigued, let's say you did your taxes the day before, or if you're distracted or if you're frustrated, you're, you, you know, you're even sleep deprived, if you're up all night because your kids are sick or whatever the case may be, that also is changing your perception of effort, which means there's, there's a mechanism that changes your, your limits that's independent of, of, of your muscles. That, that it, so it, it, it's not brain or body, it's brain and body that are all feeding into this one dial, which is how hard it feels. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, um, and, and it makes a lot of sense because, you know, as you've mentioned before, when we run a race, suddenly we see the finish line and we're able to take off in a sprint when we were almost dying a mile ago. Yeah. And this is, a, you know, when Tim Noakes first proposed the central governor theory, it was super controversial. And, and by controversial, I mean, 99% of the pe people in the, of scientists in the field thought it was ridiculous. But when I read it, Uh, as you know, as a guy who'd been racing, it just fit completely with my own experiences. Because, as you said, one of the examples he gave is if 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 fatigue is purely physical, if if you slow down because your muscles can't do it, then we should be getting slower and slower as the race progresses. Because the end of a race is when you're most tired, your muscles are most tired, and yet almost everybody, including world record holders when they're running their fastest time, no matter how fast tired they are, they always manage to speed up a little bit at the end of the race. And certainly if you sit, if you, you know, watch the end of a, a local road race, you'll see people, you know, people turn that final corner and see the finish line. And all of a sudden they're just high stepping down the, the straightaway. And that was definitely true for me. It was actually one of the most frustrating things for me. Well, I was, I started out, as I said, as a 1500 meter runner. And then I tried to move up to 5,000 meters, which was, you know, long for me. So it would feel like the middle of the race was kind of lasting forever. And always in the third or fourth K, my pace would start to slow. And I think, 
oh, I guess I've, I've, I went out too fast. I can't, I can't keep up this pace. And then I'd get to the last lap. And in track races, they ring a bell to tell you that you have one lap to go. And it's, it's, it's this Pavlovian reaction. You hear this bell going ding, 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 ding. And I would just start sprinting. And as I was sprinting, I would say, okay, I need to go as fast as I can. But I would also be just just cursing myself because I'd say, how come I can sprint? Why am I sprinting now? <laughs> Two laps ago, I was, I was sort of feeling sorry for myself and telling myself that I could barely walk and I, you know, I could just barely keep moving. Now I'm sprinting. So obviously, I was completely deluded. And no matter how many times I went through this, I couldn't fix it. I would, I would try mental tricks. I would tell myself, today, Alex, it's a 5K race, but you're only racing 4K. You, doesn't, you have to get to the fourth kilometer as fast as you can. It doesn't matter if you jog, just to make sure you don't start slowing down after 3K. And I would still slow down after 3K. So no matter what, I, I couldn't. So that's what made it feel to me like there was some central governor that was holding me back until the danger was passed, until I knew that the finish line was there. Yeah, that's super interesting. And um Given that, um, what are some ways that we can train our minds to be stronger on race days? And I'm not talking during, I'm talking strictly like before. How can we prepare ourselves better for an instance like that? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of, <laughs> it, so in the third part of my book, I, 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 I go through some more sort of speculative or interesting or crazy ways of trying to, to prepare your brain. And there's things like electric brain stimulation and there's uh, even brain endurance training, which is the sort of computer-based training where you're forcing your brain to, to keep focused for 60 minutes or 90 minutes a day. It's just, it's, you know, these things have some potential and they may work or they may not. The evidence is still a little mixed. To me, at the end of it, what I came, the message I came away with is that what really matters is Uh, you know, self-belief and the things you tell yourself in the middle of the race. So thinking about your internal monologue. So if, I think a lot of people are like me in that if you were to sort of place a, a magic tape recorder inside their head uh, in the middle of a race, you'd hear a lot of thoughts like, this is too hard. Uh, I, there's no way I can maintain this pace. I went out too fast. Uh, I obviously didn't train well enough. Uh, I can't do this. Why do I do this sport anyway? This is stupid. Um, and The, the problem is that if, if we accept this picture of perceived effort as the, the, ma the, the, the master switch, when you're telling yourself, I can't do this, you're effectively telling yourself, this is hard, this is too hard. You're, 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 you're exaggerating the perceived effort, and that's going to force you to slow down more quickly. So what, conversely, if, if you can tell yourself, I'm ready for this, I can do this, I'm, I, you know, this is what I trained for, it's supposed to be hard, then you're much more likely to to make the judgment that, yeah, this, this level of perceived effort is okay. This is what I expected. This is what I'm ready for. So going back to your question, what can you do before the race? You can't just decide in the middle of the race, I'm going to be really confident now because that, that doesn't work. You have, to, the, 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 you have to lay the groundwork. And so, uh, and, and in sports psychology, they would call this motivational self-talk. And the, the, the basic sort of three-step process is, First, you have to become aware of, of what sort of things you, you tell yourself in the, heat, in the heat of battle, as it were. So, you know, do some hard workouts and, and just tune in, listen to yourself. What, notice the things that you say to yourself when it gets hard and you're not sure you can continue. Write those down and, and take a look and, and try and figure out which are the things that are problematic, which kinds of thoughts seem to recur to you. Is it doubts about your training? Is it doubts about your toughness uh, or, you know, whatever the case may be? identify those and then come up with alternatives. And there isn't, there isn't like a master list of like, here are the things you must say to yourself because something that's motivating for, 
for one person might just seem like a cliche or, or like a, you know, kind of cheesy to someone else. And if, if, you know, you have to find something that works to you, that sounds plausible to you. It's great to be confident, but it's, it's not going to be helpful if you're telling yourself, I'm the best, I'm going to set a world record today, because you're not going to, or most <laughs> of us, you know, that, I don't know who your listeners are, listeners are, but most of us aren't going to set a world record today. So if you tell yourself something unrealistic, it's not going to convince you. So you have to find something, uh, you know, like, I, I just like, the, you know, you've trained for this, you're, you're, this is what you're here for, this is what you, you signed up for, and, and it's supposed to be hard. Uh, and then you have to practice it. You have to, you have to get out there in training and practice saying these sort of mantras to yourself until they become more or less second nature. Because when you're racing, when the chips are really down, you don't have enough extra bandwidth to be, uh, you know, forcing yourself to control your thoughts. It's got to just come automatically that, that that's what, when, when the chips are down, that's what you think. That's some great advice. Um, I, I like this whole concept of, you know, not just training for the run, but actually training your mind by working on mantras and, and listening to your body and see what you respond best. Um, and then also uh, during races, what is something that could be helpful while we're running? I, I've read about um, smiling and grimacing and, and those sort of things. Could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is something that uh, when Elliot Kipchoge, the Kenyan marathoner, uh, first started making attempts on the sub-two-hour marathon, pe people really noticed that uh, he, he, he seemed to be deliberately smiling, you know, and, and especially in the second half of the race. And at first, I didn't believe it. I was like, uh, that's, it must be just a grimace that looks like a smile because who would be smiling, you know, in the course of trying to set a world record? Um, but he, you know, after the race, he was like, yeah, no, no, I smile on purpose because it's, you know, you're, you're running with your mind as well as your body. And I'm trying to run, remind myself that I, that I feel good. And this is, you, you can class this in the category of things that I was initially skeptical about that I thought, oh, come on, you know, this is sort of uh, meaningless pop psychology. But so then some, some scientists actually tested this. I, uh, they had runners running on a treadmill and they asked them to smile or frown or just relax. And they found that they actually ran more efficiently when they were smiling. They, they, they just, their running economy, which meant that the amount of energy they burned for a given pace was, was lower. And, and there's definitely a link between, there's something called the facial feedback hypothesis, which is, it goes actually back to Charles Darwin, this idea that, You know, if I'm feeling good, I will smile because uh, of the smile. But, but there's such a tight connection between the, the emotion and the, the facial expression of it that if I smile, it makes me just a little bit more likely to, to feel good. Um, and so <clears throat> I think it's important to, to emphasize that there's lots of individual variation here too. So I sometimes, when I talk about this, some people will say, well, you know what, I think I run my best when I'm really angry or when I get mad about something. And yeah, that may be true. So you have to figure out what works for you. And so for me, what I found is if I am out for a tough run and I start trying to smile, it's an effort. I'm just not a smiley guy, uh, at least in that context. But if I can be aware of my facial expression, what I'll notice is if I'm doing a tempo run, say, I, I will notice that I tend to put on this grimace of effort. It's like I'm trying to show everyone around me how hard I'm working. And it's, a, it's an effort. It's a sort of stressful face. And it, I don't need to smile, but if I can just relax my face, take off the grimace and just go back to a neutral face, immediately I can feel a change in, in, in how I'm feeling. I, I'm no longer sending myself this message that this is really hard. This is really, you know, look how tough you are. I'm just saying, oh yeah, I can just run along. This is more relaxed than I realized. So being aware of 
your facial expression. And, and, and that goes, you, know, you can extend that to your whole, so, you know, people, you'll often hear coaches saying, you know, relax your shoulders and things like that. It's just trying to find the tension that, that you're sometimes when we're pushing hard, we're, we're, we're really tensed up and as if that's going to help us. And if starting with your face, if you can relax, I think that's a big, that's a powerful thing to do. That makes a lot of sense. And that makes you wonder, it's probably also applicable to breathing. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, breathing is a is a is a a whole uh, to- topic of its own, and I think there is, a, and there's you'll you'll hear lots of 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 you, conflicting advice about the the best way to breathe, uh, and I I'm I'm not a super expert in this area, but what I would say is, what I noticed in big races for myself is that I would start to tend to breathe very shallowly, that I was nervous, and so I'd be taking little shallow panting breaths, and I think that for me was associated with developing stitches, side stitches and stuff. And so if at the same time, if you can be aware of your facial expression, you can also be aware of, okay, I can breathe a little more fully, a little more, you know, breathe. I can relax, take full breaths. I don't need to go. <laughs> Cause that's, then you're just using a, a tiny fraction of your, of your lungs. But yeah, it's, it's a, there's some books out these days. There's a book by James Nestor called Breathe. I haven't read it yet, but people, a lot of people are talking about it. There's a lot of discussion about trying to f- figure out because there's no doubt that the way we breathe has a big impact on how we're feeling and how we perform. And so the question is how to, how to harness that to make sure we're, we're, we're getting the most out of ourselves. I would say, I guess the last thing I would say on this topic is I think that when it comes to breathing, the main advice I would give to people is not to stress too much about it, that your body will, will, dictate the oxygen you, you, you need, but that you can be aware, as we were saying, of, of like, oh, are you tensing up too much? Are you just breathing too shallowly? Are you starting to hyperventilate? So, so be aware of it, but don't, don't try and micromanage your breathing, I would say. That makes a lot of sense. And we'll also put that book on our future reading list. And um, what about for you? What's in your future? What are your goals as to writing more books and also your own personal running? Yeah, it's an interesting time. I mean, in terms of running, my I, I've been less. I, I, I've only been running a few races a year lately. Um, I have a couple of young kids, and and it's it's obviously been that uh, they've been my my focus a little bit in terms of taking that that edge. But I my long term goals since I've run I, I I used to run on the track, and then I switched. I was doing road racing and cross country racing. I'd like to try some longer trail races. I think that would be a fun way of pushing my limits in, in a way that's different from what I've done before. It's hard. I live in a, a big city of 4 million. That's not near any great, not a lot of great trails. Um, and as I said, I have young kids, so I, it's hard for me to just say, go for, go away for a week to the mountains or something, but I'd love to do some mountain ultras someday. That's, that's long-term goal. Uh, in terms of writing, I'm, I'm struggling with that a little bit right now. You know, Endure was a book that, it, you know, I spent nominally 10 years on it, but in a sense, it's sort of my whole life of running and, and, and studying science and putting all this stuff together. So it's hard to find another topic that, uh, that draws so deeply on my own experiences. So I would like to write another book. Uh, I'm actively trying to find a topic, but I haven't zeroed in on one yet and for the moment i'm i'm focusing then more on doing some magazine journalism and one of the hopes is that magazine I, you know I, I write short pieces but i also write long features sometimes and long features is a great way of exploring a, a a story idea and seeing if there's something more there and that's actually where some of the ideas for 
Endure came from is by doing magazine features because then you get a chance to visit people. It, you don't have to commit to say, I'm going to spend five years writing a book about you. You can say, I'm going to spend a month writing this magazine piece. And then you, you discover if, if, uh, if there's something more to, to, uh, to, to dig into or if you want to follow that thread a little farther. Well, we'll be hopeful that there'll be more and that we'll hear more from you. Thank you, Alex, so much. And um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to follow you on uh, social media or email or website? Sure. Uh, it, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Sweat Science, all one word. I, uh, th- I also have a Facebook page, Sweat Science, but Twitter's where I'm most active. And that's where, if you, know, if you have questions, if you reach out, I, I try and reply to all questions or, or I can take it offline or, or through direct messaging if anyone wants. Um, I do have a website, alexhutchinson.net, but that's, it's like 10 years out of date. So, <laughs> um, probably, uh, probably Twitter's the best place to find me. And especially if I, you know, I write articles for outside magazine once or twice a week, uh, that are, that are posted online. So I post the links there on Twitter. Um, so it's a good place to, to start. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for connecting. And I really enjoyed the, the having a chance to chat. Thanks so much, Alex, for being a guest on our show. I appreciate your time and your wisdom. All right, so now I'm going to move on to our one of our listeners' questions in regards to a physical injury. And as always, we're going to make a phone call and consult Australian physiotherapist Brody Sharp. Hello, Brody. Welcome back to another episode. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. I'm pumped. I'm excited. Let's let's dive into another question. All right. I have a question for you for, from Pamela Brooks. She says, I've had three stress fractures in my feet over the last two years. What am I doing wrong or do I just have brittle bones? Oh, I feel for you, Pamela. Like the <laughs> stress fractures are never a good diagnosis and to have three in two years. It's, um, it's got to be frustrating. Um, there's a couple of things we can discuss, um, whether you are doing something wrong or not. Uh, I'm not too sure how old you are, but um, there, it is a very common pattern. If you have had it more than once, there's probably been some sort of history of like malnutrition or low body weight or um, just not respecting the recovery phase when it comes to bone health. Uh, there is a whole topic around red S uh, relative energy deficiency in sports where um, the bones essentially do get more brittle because of lack of nutrition or lack of recovery. Um, so there, there is a topic on that. Um, but if we're talking about uh, if you're doing anything wrong, um, there has been evidence to show that runners who have had a history of stress fractures, they can, uh, in, they do run with an increased spike in ground reaction force. So they're essentially hitting the ground harder. Um, I'm not too sure where you're, uh, you, you do have stress fractures in the feet, not too sure what foot bone you do have, but um, I might suspect that your general technique, you might be hitting the ground a little bit harder than uh, another runner, which can lead to or increase the risk of stress fractures. So I might query that a little bit. Um, and if that is the case, maybe just doing some gait retraining or changing the way you are running with the advice of a, a running professional um, to make sure that we're reducing those ground reaction forces. Um, the other thing just being training errors. So if you're just increasing your mileage or you're having big spikes in mileage, um, that might be a thing. And 
I'm not too sure if you've had bone density scans in the past, but if there is um, signs of really low bone density um, based on scans, then you can do some general like um, strengthening exercises to help increase bone density. We do need to train um, a little bit differently than most other strengthening exercises. It usually comes with um, like uh, hitting the ground a little bit harder in a small controlled manner to help increase bone density. But um, that requires like the, the guidance and the advice of a professional. So I would recommend a couple of those things. Perfect. And if Pam has any follow-up questions or wants to explain to you a little bit better what's going on, how can she do that? Yeah. Uh, well, the first point of contact, if you do want to listen to my podcast, the Run Smarter podcast, I do have an episode uh, number 56, which is titled Avoiding and Managing Stress Fractures. And yeah, we delve into a little bit of Red S. Uh, we delve into a little bit of nutrition or what type of, what stress fractures actually are, what causes them. And then some tips at the end on how to best avoid um, those stress fractures. So I think based on your scenario, that episode might be right up your alley. Uh, so you can go there if you want to contact me directly. I do have a new website called runsmarter.online. So you can uh, visit the website there and uh, fill out the contact form. Sounds super interesting. Thanks, Brody, so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Brody, for answering our listener questions. And if you guys want to submit your questions to us, please just send us a message and we'll make sure that Brody Shop will answer your question on the air. And that brings me to the end of our podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Alex Hutchinson and the segment with Brody Sharp. And I hope you guys tune in next week. And until then, have a great week of running. Thanks for listening. For training tips, previous podcast episodes, and fun merchandise for runners, please check out our website at wgtr.us. That's wgtr.us. And as always, have a wonderful week of running.